Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Monday, the 30th of October. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, a measure of inflation that is closely watched by the Federal Reserve showed core inflation cooled in September as consumer spending strengthened, easing pressure on the central bank to raise rates at its meeting this week. A core personal consumption expenditure index, which strips out volatile items such as food and energy, fell to an annualised rate of 3.7% from a downwardly revised figure of 3.8% in August and marking the lowest level in two years. China's industrial profits fell in the first nine months of 2023 from a year ago. Profits earned by China's industrial firms fell by 9% year-on-year to 5.4 trillion yuan in the first nine months of the year, slowing from an 11 11.7% slump in the prior period amid signs of stabilisation in the economy and easing margin pressures. In September, industrial profits increased by 11.9% year-on-year after a 17.2% jump in August. Official data released by the Ratings and Valuation Department on Friday shows that private home prices in Hong Kong last month dropped five months in a row to their lowest level since April 2017. The price of private flats dropped one and three quarter percent in September. Hong Kong's widely watched lived-in home price index fell to 332.1 in September, wiping out the gains made so far this year. And the index has lost almost 17% now from its peak in September 2021. China Evergrande, the world's most indebted property developer, with about 2.3 trillion yuan of total liabilities, that's about 327 billion US dollars, faces a winding up hearing in Hong Kong today where it needs to present concrete restructuring progress to avoid liquidation. Evergrande said last week that it's revising the terms of its restructuring plan without giving details after scrapping creditor meetings at the last minute in September and saying it would need to reassess its proposals. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Christopher Lee, Partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. And providing a view from mainland China will be Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. The autumn sell-off in U.S. stocks worsened Friday, dragging the Dow lower and pushing the S&P 500 into correction territory. The S&P 500 slipped half a percent to finish the session at 4,117, closing 10.3% lower from this year's peak, which it hit on July the 31st, and that meets the popular definition of a market correction. The S&P 500's gains for the year have been cut to 7.2%, sharply down from the nearly 20% advance the index was sitting on in July. The Dow fell 367 points, or 1.1%, to close at 32,418. The Dow was pressured by a 3.6% decline in JP Morgan Chase after CEO Jamie Dimon said he planned to sell 1 million shares next year. The Nasdaq Composite rose 0.4% to 12,643, thanks to shares of Amazon, which added 6.8% after beating analysts' expectations for revenue and earnings in the third quarter. The index ended a correction earlier in the week and has fallen for three consecutive weeks. The 10-year US Treasury yield was unchanged on Friday, but seven basis points lower over the week at 3.85%. 
Gold surged above $2,000 an ounce for the first time since May, as concerns over conflict in the Middle East outweighed the impact of the recent jump in bond yields. Spot gold rose 1.1% Friday to $2,006 an ounce, and the move takes its gains for the month to almost 10%, putting the metal on course for the biggest monthly gain since July 2020. Oil surged the most in two weeks after Israel's military said it was expanding ground activity in Gaza. Brent crude oil settled 1.4% higher at $89.20 a barrel. And the US dollar index paired early gains to trade around 106.5 on Friday, remaining close though to November highs after PCE inflation continued to show price pressures in the US as slowly moderating but still remain elevated. Against the yen, the dollar ended the day half a percent lower at 149.6 Japanese yen ahead of this week's BOJ meeting. The Chinese yuan was unchanged over the week at 7.317 RMB. Hong Kong stocks rose by the most in four weeks as more Chinese companies announced share buyback plans and industrial profits increased for a second straight month. The Hang Seng Index advanced 354 points or 2.1% to 17,399, bringing the gain to 1.3% for the week. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite added 1%, rebounding back above the 3,000 level to 3,017, and for the week it was up 1.2%. And unfortunately, looks like the Hang Seng is going to give back a large chunk of Friday's gains this morning. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 245 points at the open. That's 1.4%. Looks like the projected starts for the Hang Seng this morning around 17,150. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis. Last couple of days of October, it's the beginning of a brand new week. Let's welcome our Monday morning guest, Alex Wong, Director, Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Good morning. And also with us, Christopher Lee, who's Senior Partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. Welcome back, Chris. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Let's start in the US. A measure of inflation that's closely watched by the Fed showed core inflation called in September as consumer spending strengthened. That eases pressure a little bit on the central bank to raise rates at its meeting, which is later this week. The core personal consumption expenditure index, that's quite a mouthful, which strips out volatile items such as food and energy, fell to an annualised rate of 3.7% from a downwardly revised figure of 3.8% in August. That marks the lowest level in two years. Core prices were up at a 2.8% annualised rate in April through until September. That's down considerably from a 4.5% annualised rate in the prior six-month period. Another thing to watch out for in that data, personal spending in the United States. It rose by 0.7% in September from a month earlier, following a 0.4% increase in August and exceeding economists' estimates of a half percent advance. Spending on services saw a substantial increase of 0.8%, while spending on goods rose 0.7%. Um, Alex, let me get your thoughts, first of all, on that inflation data. Jumps the most in four months as spending um, sort of picks up. But what, what do you make of it overall? What's it telling us? I think uh, people probably would be forward-looking and expect a recession to come soon in the, in the U.S. So I don't think uh, that that, date, that set of data would uh, matter m- much. I think um, 
Probably the people would look at the Fed uh, closely. If they raise rate again, I think people would reckon that as a big mistake because uh, we are seeing the uh, weakness in the bond market. And that, I think, effectively means uh, several times rate high already uh, to those uh, companies and the economy. I think uh, we probably may start to see consumer spending to come down because of the uh, high rates. Uh, and that, I think, uh, would hurt those um, uh, uh, industries like uh, uh, car and durable goods. So I think uh, we are likely to see a recession to come soon in the U.S. and that is what expected in the market. Mm -hmm. And if the fact I think uh, raise the, the short-term rates again, I think that probably would be reckoned as a big mistake. And the, the savings rate, it fell to 3.4%, the lowest level this year. So it sort of suggests, doesn't it, that um, Americans are now cutting into their savings to sort of fuel this spending, which may, means it's probably not sustainable, is it? Yeah, right. And if you look at the uh, result announcement last week, uh, several companies come down uh, after the guidance, like uh, Meta and Mastercard uh, and Mattel. I think uh, people are expecting uh, those companies to be hurt by uh, reduced consum consumer spending soon. So I think uh, the guidance actually are quite bearish. So mm. quite likely we are see yes, we we will see a recession to come uh, at last. Chris, what's your thoughts mm -hmm. on, on this? First of all, on yeah. the inflation number mm -hmm. um, itself, and maybe as Alex was saying, the Fed's not going to react to that, but what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the central bankers are definitely turning dovish, right? So uh, to your point earlier, the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, is at 3.7%, lower than expected. And also last week, uh, ECB also kept rates unchanged. So this is consistent with uh, what the market is expecting. So like Alex, I would be very, very surprised if they hike rates. And I think most people are really expecting the uh, the US dollar interest rate to be unchanged because of the bearish sentiment and also the central bankers have really turned dovish. Mm. What What is it that's keeping the American consumer spending for so long? It's sort of like defying all the odds, isn't it? And in fact, it's also defying what consumers are doing in other parts of the world. Because if you look in China, the consumer is pretty depressed. Similarly, mm. in the Eurozone, they, you know, the, the consumer's not really spending. Similar story now in Japan as well. Mm. It's just the American consumer <laughs> that's really going gangbusters. What, why is that? Well, I'll speak first, uh, and then Alex, uh, please uh, chime in. Just based on my years of uh, living experiences in the U.S., I think this is cultural, right? So it's a consumption-based economy, and mm -hmm. uh, people would borrow uh, from their credit cards just to buy stuff, right? And so this is, I think, partly historical and also uh, very cultural. Yeah, what do you think, Alex? I think probably, yes, it's a cultural thing. This is very difficult to expect. But I think uh, the, the market actually expects the consumer spending to come down soon. Mm. Yeah. And it just hasn't, has it? No sign at all. Yeah, but I think in the, in the, in the Orient cult Oriental culture, actually people, people will start to save uh, if they expect bad times to come. So I think that's why we are seeing a reduction in spending in, in this part of the world first. Yeah. It, is it linked to jobs as well? I presume that if you feel confident about your job um, and, and jobs are plentiful, you can <laughs> resign and feel pretty comfortable that you're going to get another job. That helps you spend, which is the case in the US. Whereas if you take China, mm -hmm. um, you know, we have this youth unemployment rate of above 20 percent. Jobs aren't plentiful. Is, is that part of the explanation? Yeah, probably because... Uh, 
if you are working in the IT field, I think probably you you feel much better in the US right now because of the AI development. And and if you're in the service industry, actually there are quite a lot of openings as well. So for the low end and the high end jobs, I think there's there's still quite plentiful uh, openings in the US. But mm -hmm. in China, probably uh, if you are in the in the low end, probably you just uh, feel uh, a little bit depressed because our wages actually are, 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 are being contained, I think, in China. So I think mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that's the difference. Yeah. Well, while I think uh, most people are pretty bearish at this point, and, uh, but I would uh, have a little bit of a positive uh, sentiment here, right, that uh, we know that in November next month, uh, there's the Asia-Pacific Economic Conference in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I mean, last week we have uh, Governor Gavin Newsom from uh, California visiting Hong Kong and China. And so Xi Jinping is also uh, scheduled to be visiting San Francisco uh, during the APEC conference. So I do think that's that, not uh, confirmed, though, is it? There, there could well be some tricky negotiations over that visit. Well, you are probably right that it's not finalized yet, but I think many people are betting that it will happen. Yeah. Mm. But so I think uh, this is this is the positive uh, I think sentiment that I like to inject into this morning's uh, conversation, uh, so that it's not so all gloomy and bearish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing I suppose that may explain the American consumer, and again is a contrast with China, mm. is um, house prices are still going up, aren't they? In mm. America, they're not in uh, in China, and also a lot of people have fixed their mortgages at pretty low mm -hmm. sort of rates so that I presume they're feeling quite pleased with themselves about that and that, that that's sort of overriding their fears about inflation. Yeah, yeah, of course. But the, <laughs> the point is that if they need they, they could not they would not dare to sell their home because of this yeah. fixed mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> so no one's gonna move now, are they? Yeah, <laughs> they don't want to change their mortgage rates. But nevertheless it must have a big impact on consumer spending. And also the fact that there is inflation there. Mm -hmm. People are thinking, well, I better spend now before um, sort of prices go up as opposed to China where you think, well, prices are gonna go down, I might as well hang on. That's right. Yeah, there are definitely conflicting details and information that we see, and it's nothing new. I mean, this is the uh, the, the paradox of the uh, U.S.-China relationship in the economy, and I think uh, university professors have always said this uh, ambidextrous uh, situation, uh, like embracing the opposite. Right? It's mm. uh, it's something that uh, will be here uh, in the foreseeable future. Mm, okay. Well, we had data out of China as well, so let's look at that. China's industrial profits fell in the first nine months of the year from a year earlier. That's according to data released by the government on Friday. Profits in China's industrial firms fell 9% year on year to 5.4 trillion yuan. Uh, that's slowing from an 11.7% slump in the prior period. Profits declined at softer paces for both state-owned firms and the private sector. In September, industrial profits increased by 11.9% year on year after a 17.2% jump in August. Alex, what do, you, what do you make of that? Are you seeing signs that you know the economy is now stabilized, both through the data we're seeing, the PMI numbers, industrial profits like this? Yeah, I think at least uh, they are stabilizing. I think uh, uh, after so many policies helping, and and uh, I think uh, China has so some signs of uh, stabilization. But I think uh, we we really need to look at the PPI later on because uh, it mean it still means um, the China actually is in overcapacity situation in the industrial sector, and probably prices will not have much room to rebound. So I think uh, for profit wise, for margin wise, probably we are seeing some improvement. But uh, for overall uh, situation, I still think uh, we need a lot of things to do. 
So we, that producer price index that you mentioned, it was it declined 2.5% in September. What you need to see is see that turn positive for signs that maybe um, things are improving and demand is improving. I don't think it will turn positive. I think it will remain in negative territory for quite some time because of the overcapacity situation and, and also the um, overseas buy actually risking and, and, and sourcing out elsewhere. So we are lucky to see the PPI remain in negative territory for quite some time. But I think we need to see the Relative um, to, to to narrow, I think. Mm -hmm. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the uh, the economy is uh, stabilizing. Um, so I echo Alex's point there. As an investor, what I'm really concerned about is whether the stock markets are stabilizing. Mm. Right. So we don't want the stock prices to go down, and we actually want them to go up. So I think the bigger question remains whether investors have the confidence to go into an equities market, whether they will uh, go from a risk-off um, kind of like mentality into a risk-on mentality. So that will be something that we can further, I think, explore. Yeah, I want to discuss that more with you in just, just a moment. Let me just ask you a bit more about the, 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 the profits that, that we're seeing. Uh, is demand improving, do you think, Chris, on the mainland? Is there a sign at last that mm -hmm. maybe uh, there is this pickup in demand? Well, when I went to Shenzhen about a month ago, I did feel that uh, there was a lot of energy on the street and people are buying stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I did feel that it was a return to kind of like 50% uh, of the normal. Um, I do feel that uh, it is being, I think, translated into more spending, more consumption, and hopefully more corporate profits. And ultimately, it will be a better performance for, for investments. Mm. And is this coming about because of mm -hmm. those government stimulus measures? We've seen quite a few of them announced now, haven't we, over right. the last few weeks. Is, is that making a difference? Yeah, I am sure they don't want to take all the credits uh, for having this, uh, I think, uh, positive move. But it is a portfolio approach, I believe, mm. I mean, because they announced, what, 175 A portfolio of stimulus measures. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just one single uh, position that contributed to this, um, I think, uptake. But uh, just like, you know, we have a number of uh, positions in our portfolio, they all contribute a little bit, and ultimately it leads to positive performance. So I think it's the portfolio of things that the government has done um, that have contributed to the, uh, to the increasing, uh, I think, uh, performance, at least on the economic front. Excellent. Is the economy improving? Are we yeah. going to start seeing a pickup now, in, do you think, in the, maybe mm -hmm. this quarter and into next year? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, probably we will see stabilization and we may need see some improvement in, in the economic performance. But I don't think uh, we would see much better performance in the stock market, actually, mm. because mm. sentiment actually is still quite bad. And uh, we need to see some drastic change, I think, to, okay. to change that, yeah. All right, I'm going to talk about the stock market in a moment. I <laughs> know we, we want to get onto that. Let me just ask you before we do about Hong mm. Kong, because right. yeah. um, we had the policy address mm -hmm. last week from John Lee. After that, Hong Kong Financial Secretary Paul Chan said that the measures announced in the policy address are going to expand the budget deficit to almost mm -hmm. twice what he forecast in his budget back in February. He said he's anticipating a higher than expected deficit for the current fiscal year due to an increase in government expenditure and a drop in revenue from land sales and stamp duty. And he now expects the deficit to reach 100 billion Hong Kong dollars compared to the previous forecast of 54.4 billion. Now, the government recorded a deficit in the last financial year of about $140 billion. And over the past four years, the deficit now is estimated at about $440 billion Hong Kong dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's 
uh, eating into our reserves. The reserves stood at the end of August as a, uh, almost 700 billion Hong Kong dollars, but that's about two, two fifths lower uh, than four years ago. Um, Chris, should we be worried? No, I don't think we need to be that worried. I think Hong Kong is uh, resilient. We've gone through a number of crises uh, in the past. And uh, again, I think, um, you know, to your point, yes, I know the stock market is at almost like a, you know, one year low. And also uh, the uh, the, um, the home prices have been also uh, low. And but I know you're not 25 years old, uh, so Peter. So I mean, we we you know we quote a, a very famous uh, Kento pop singer like Alan Tam. He wants to be 25 every year, and I also want to be 25. If you were 25 and you are a working professional here in Hong Kong, low property prices mean you could actually afford to buy your units. So. In the long term, if you want to keep the talent here in Hong Kong, you've mm. talked about a lot of talent sort of like leaving Hong Kong in the past few days with a number of your guests. And so I think for the long term, this is actually not a bad situation in terms of uh, retaining our people. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, there's the other flip side of the coin, isn't it? Which is that declining home prices um, uh, are going to attract people to come. Uh, but, Alex, what, are you worried about the state of our finances or is this something that, you know, the reserves are for, basically? I think the reserves continue to fall. Public finance-wise, I think we should be quite worried because, of, first of all, I think uh, land sales actually would be very bad right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in the uh, – and, and secondly, I think uh, the overall stamp duties income actually would fall a lot. Uh, both from the stock market and property with transactions. Uh, so public finance-wise, I think uh, we probably really need it to into our, uh, our reserve uh, for, for probably a few more years. But uh, for, for the economic performance, I think uh, we need to see something change in, in, the, in the equity market first. I think they need to stimulate the um, turnover here as an mm-hmm. sentiment here. Uh, but I think uh, in the policy address, the most important part actually is the migrant, uh, quality migrant program. Uh, that I think uh, should be the uh, catalyst, uh, at least in the short term. So we, are need, we, we probably need to monitor the progress uh, in that area because of that I think it would uh, help uh, may help the uh, uh, help to decontent the decline in the property prices here. Okay, so that that's the talent scheme that, that John Lee announced last year and uh, is expanding this year. Yeah, because basically uh, right now the, the those uh, migrant need uh, uh, don't don't need to pay the uh, uh, extra tax first. So they basically need to hold the uh, property for a maximum of seven years. So I think that is helping uh, uh, them to to get into the properties market in in Hong Kong right now. So I think uh, we need to see the demand side, uh, whether it would change uh, from this policy or not. Mm. There is the one caveat Mm. to that, of course, which is that you've got to become a permanent resident, Mm -hmm. haven't you, by the end of that seven years. Otherwise, you've got to pay the full tax. (laughs) Yeah, right. So uh, I think that is the the, the major, 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 major key points in in that policy address. What about the cut in stamp duty on stock transactions? Is that going to make a difference? Uh, that I, think, I don't think so. I think uh, we are still a little bit high for short-term traders. So I think uh, it's not helping much. Yeah. Mm. Right. If you let me build on uh, your point, uh, Alex, about the migrant program, right? So I believe Hong Kong government is interested in attracting young talent and the um, you know young people, I think, who move to Hong Kong definitely 
would like to buy a nice apartment, and they would definitely benefit from the uh, current low prices, right? In terms of entry point, if things are still very expensive, then people would still say, "Well, I don't want to move to Hong Kong because I just can't afford to live comfortably." So I think uh, building on the uh, the earlier point earlier that uh, e even though it is going through a bit of a slump right now, but over the long term, in terms of retaining the people here and also attracting the uh, talent from other places, I think uh, it will bode well for our long-term future. Now, that top talent pass scheme that you're mm -hmm. talking about, which is for, for well-educated top earners, isn't it? That's right. the idea, to attract them to Hong Kong. It's drawn so far more than 160,000 mm -hmm. applications, around 100,000 have approved. So it's probably doing better than was anticipated. The only fly in the ointment, I mm. think, is that it's nearly all people from the mainland. Very few people from you know, the US, Europe, Australia uh, sort of mm -hmm. coming. Does it need to be balanced out a little bit more? Do we need more talents from outside mm -hmm. of the mainland? Definitely. And uh, I do think that a majority of them will come from the mainland, just uh, culturally speaking. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but anecdotally, I know somebody who is actually from Russia, who is a specialist in debt capital markets, uh, working for Chinese banks here who are actually expanding to that part of the world. So uh, there are few cases that actually we can look at that uh, show that uh, it is still, I think, uh, in line with the uh, government's objective of Hong Kong being an international financial center, attracting some of the 35-year-olds and maybe even some of the early uh, career uh, professionals in uh, capital markets. And, and what about the plan to mm -hmm. get companies to come and set up their headquarters here mm -hmm. to basically re-domicile mm -hmm. in Hong Kong? Do you think that's going to have some traction? I am a fan of uh, you know family offices and also you know using Hong Kong as a uh, uh, location for uh, for tax reasons, for legal reasons, and mainly for uh, for also uh, opportunities in terms of accessing the uh, the mainland and also the rest of Asia. So for family offices, I do think there is a, a very strong argument why you should actually be here in Hong Kong. Mm. And uh, in terms of uh, corporations, I think the uh, the same types of. Uh, um, incentives would apply to corporations also operating companies. Mm. Alex, what do you think? Do you think we, we're going to be successful in getting companies, large corporations, to basically redomicile, well, not necessarily redomicile, but set up mm -hmm. a headquarter uh, in Hong Kong? Yeah, because Hong Kong still have the low mm -hmm. tax regime, I think that is the major attraction point. And but of course, uh, the middleman role actually reduces a lot uh, because of the advance in tech and advance in China. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we we are still we are still having some values. I think especially in 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 the in the probably pharma or medicine industry. Yeah. Well, let's get on to the markets. I know you're itching to talk about them. Let's start with Hong Kong. We did get the biggest rise in four weeks um, on Friday after what's been a dismal uh, few days before. A lot more Chinese companies announcing buyback plans. And also we had those industrial profits numbers, which increased for the second straight month. That helped the Hang Seng jump 354 points or 2.1%. And it brings the gains to 1.3% uh, for the week. The tech index was up almost 4% over the week and on the mainland the Shanghai Composite it rebounded back above the 3000 level to 3017 although futures today are pointing mm -hmm. to another decline uh, for the uh, for the Hang Seng. Alex where do you think we are now? Every rebound so far that we've seen over what the last three months um, has been met pretty quickly with selling. Yeah I think uh, we're still in ring trading and at best uh, we probably may get another leg of rebound uh, 
because if you look at the uh, overall performance, uh, we are not seeing a uh, across the board rebound. Actually, we are seeing several sectors to outperform, and mainly tech and also some industrial companies. But if you look at um, insurers and mainland banks, or um, mainland telecoms companies, or even Standard Charter, actually they they uh, they they are they performed quite poorly in, during mm -hmm. this uh, period. So I think uh, if you look at those tech. Probably just just a short covering or just a bargain hunting is not uh, changing much in fundamentals, and industrial companies actually um, probably um, improving a little bit. Uh, if you look at some companies like Sunny Optical, actually people are expecting uh, a change in fundamental in that company. So we are seeing some um, renewed interest in several tech uh, make in the manufacturing companies, which are which are helpful from expectations. So sentiment actually has improved a little bit. But I don't think uh, we would see much uh, upside here because I think uh, if you look at um, the, the the overall market, we are not seeing strength in insurers and we're not seeing strength in in mainland banks and so and also if you look at the mainland markets, actually multi actually are are not doing much uh, during this rebound. Uh, so overall, I think uh, the market actually is uh, it's, it's just in ring trading. How much of this is earnings related? Standard Charter that you mentioned, it took a big hit, didn't it, on its uh, investments in Chinese property. We had China Life reported a 99% plunge in third quarter profits. How, how much of what we're seeing is earnings related? Yeah, I think that this is earnings seasons and, and even in the US is uh, earnings related. Uh, so people probably would expect those uh, companies to underperform because uh, the fundamental action has not changed. I think uh, people uh, probably would see um, Evergrande and, and Country Garden going out to go under. I think uh, that is not happened yet, so the impact actually may not fully may not be fully felt. So I think uh, people would avoid those sectors and and just uh, stick with uh, those uh, companies with a strong balance sheet and cash flow. So overall, I don't think uh, the market would 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 be strong across the board. So we are likely to see um, uh, only some companies to to recover. And and if you look at those tech companies, I don't think they probably have much upside because we are probably still worried about the sellers. Uh, if you look at Tencent, I think people are talking about the potential selling by its uh, mm -hmm. South African uh, big share, uh, big shareholders as now already. So I think that they will cap the upside as well. Chris, what's it going to take mm -hmm. to get a, a sustained rebound in, in this market? I mean, people were getting a bit optimistic on Friday mm -hmm. because we saw quite a decent bounce, but futures markets mm -hmm. now suggesting a lot of that's going to be given back once again, which has really been the story of the, right. ever since the summer, hasn't it? Every rebound mm -hmm. has just been met with a, a renewed decline. Mm -hmm. To have a sustainable recovery to your question, uh, Peter, I think two things. I mean, one is that uh, I think our local investors, people like Alex and myself, we ought to feel more bullish about the local market so that we can uh, start investing more and also have our Hong Kong-China allocation to be um, higher than, uh, than what it used to be. And uh, I do feel positive at the moment because if you look at the low of uh, 2022, it was roughly around 14,000 uh, Hang Seng level. Mm -hmm. And we're now range uh, trading at around 17,000 level. So it's stabilizing, I mean, to our point earlier when we first came in this morning, that I think the, um, uh, the corporate uh, profits have not quite reflected the, uh, the, the actual recovery yet. But the stock market is also, I think, um, waiting to uh, show the, uh, the uh, to reflect the corporate co profits 
when the when the recovery actually happens, then there will be more corporate profits, and then the uh, stock markets will definitely go up as a result of the uh, the positive, I think, uh, chain reaction. And so that's one thing in terms of the uh, the. I think local investors' uh, allocation uh, into Hong Kong China stocks, and the second thing is about uh, companies that are other than the uh, traditional insurance, other than the banking, other than the property sectors. I mean, I think you have to look at some of the other companies that got listed on the uh, Hong Kong stock market. So take take the IPO last Friday as mm. an example, uh, JNT. Again, I mean, this is. Not a sexy company; it's a logistics company, right? So it basically closed flat, didn't it, compared to its IPO price? Closed flat. Closed flat is good, <laughs> because many IPOs <laughs> these days, yes, many IPOs have traded below their, yeah. uh, you know. IPO prices. Bit of a right? change, though, isn't it, from where we were a couple of years ago? I, yeah, exactly. So I want to go back to your uh, very, very early question: right? Are we stabilizing here? Are we seeing the uh, the economy stabilizing? And I hope that uh, the stock market is stabilizing, right? So not trading below your IPO price is actually a good thing. And so because you have to trade at the IPO price, and, and then you can trade above the IPO price in the future. So this is a company that has a lot of uh, blue chip uh, investors like the Tamasac of the world and also the Sequoia of the world. Uh, it's affiliated with uh, Jet Li as well, so there's a little bit of a star power here. So I do think that uh, you know having more of these uh, companies listing in Hong Kong and giving investors more options, right, other than just the traditional banking, property, insurance sector, will give us more investment tools. And mm-hmm. as an investor, I mean, I would welcome more of these uh, listing in the marketplace. So I remain uh, optimistic. Okay, well, that was the second yeah. biggest IPO of the year here in, uh, here in Hong second Kong. Second biggest, exactly. Second biggest. Yeah. We've got a big event coming up mm-hmm. today, though, the Evergrande Court hearing, mm-hmm. where it could be wound up. Um, it's been told to provide credible restructuring plans, which mm-hmm. it hasn't done so far, and it pulled its previous uh, restructuring plan. If it is wound up, it will be the biggest uh, liquidation of a property developer in Hong Kong in history. Mm-hmm. Is it going to have a wider impact, do you think, on the broader property sector and the market overall, or do you think it will just be contained, given that it's a Hong Kong winding up, and of mm-hmm. course doesn't change anything on the mainland? <laughs> Yeah, I think the uh, investors are going to take a hit. Right? So the investors in Evergrande are going to be the ones who will uh, get the short end of the stick. And um, so fortunately, I mean, the debt and also the other securities of Evergrande are not securitized and repackaged and repackaged, and they have not been sort of like sold and structured. And um, I think this is rather a, a pretty control and also contained situation. It's not going to be another Lehman situation. Mm, okay. Alex, a couple of big things going on this week in international markets, over, particularly over in the US. And I don't actually mean the Fed meeting. I think mm. there's a couple of other things that maybe uh, investors are focusing on. First of all, Apple's earnings coming out on Thursday. A lot of focus, hasn't there, been on tech earnings so far, which um, haven't really been that great. The, the market seems to be really very much focusing now on the outlook for these, uh, these tech companies. So how important is Apple going to be on Thursday, particularly given that we know it's facing a sort of slump in smartphone sales in China? I think expectations probably will be low. Uh, and if you look at the tech earnings, I think uh, Google and, and Meta actually are, are really bad. 
uh, after the results because uh, I think they are more macro-related because advertising actually is really macro-related and this is remains their major revenue and of course Facebook spend too much money on the metaverse so that is another thing uh, but if you look at Amazon, Microsoft mm. actually they are doing great after the results mm. I think because of how business actually help in, uh, adapt their, their customers to, it, to, to, to save money so I think that we are in a in the expectation of recession time. But for Apple, I think uh, this is more or less probably a macro-related company. So I think that's why the, the expectation would remain low, and, and I think we need to monitor this closely, because I think uh, if you look at the track records of those are big techs right now, mm -hmm. uh, you can divide it into two parts. I think uh, those companies which are helping customers to save money, or those are really macro-related. If you, if you count Tesla, actually, it's also coming down because uh, people expect uh, consumers to spend less uh, on car because of high interest payment. Even they reduce the price, actually the interest payments on, on the consumers actually would offset the, the price decrease. So I think uh, mm -hmm. that's why people are not too, 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 are not too, too optimistic on tax uh, uh, mm -hmm. outlook right now. So I think uh, uh, right now people are really dividing into two parts uh, in, the, in the tech sector. Those companies are more related to cow probably may be okay. Uh, even Salesforce are okay. Uh, self, uh, so I've, I think uh, we need to see uh, individual companies and, the, and, the, and then the nature of the business. Okay, well, Chris, final thoughts to you. There's mm. another big event as well this week, which is also not the Fed meeting, but on the same day. Mm. Uh, we're going to see how much the Treasury needs to borrow um, over the next uh, next quarter. Could be as much as a trillion um, right. dollars. Right. Presumably, this is going to have a big impact on the bond market. It's been one of the big features, isn't it, of the bond market volatility, the, the Treasury funding right. plans uh, to fund the enormous deficit. That's right. The um, I think... This is the bipartisan effort that, that both the Republicans and the Democrats right, have to come together and agree on just uh, borrowing more. I just don't see any way other than borrowing and borrowing and borrowing more. Because just to our earlier point that uh, you know, the spending culture is there and we have not seen the, uh, the Americans uh, tightening bills and also spending less. So they just have to, I think, um, pass the, uh, the, the agreement to have this uh, uh, to be carried on. Otherwise, we don't want to see Washington shut down. We don't want to see a government shut down and you go to Washington, D.C. and nothing works. <laughs> okay, so we're going to see more bond market volatility probably um, once we get this announcement. Okay, well, we've covered a lot there. Thank you very much for your thoughts on a wide range of topics. That was Christopher Lee, who's senior partner at Farron, Augustine and Alexander Investments, and our regular Monday morning commentator, Alex Wong, director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Ben Kevinder, who is managing director at the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. Very good morning to you, Ben. Good morning. Now, the big news, I think, last week, wasn't it, was about China raising its fiscal deficit uh, limit. It's approved a plan to raise the fiscal deficit ratio for 2023 to about 3.8% of GDP. That's well above the 3% set in March. This is pretty unusual, isn't it? China doesn't normally adjust its budget uh, sort of mid-year. So is this a sign that we should be taking that it is really worried about the state of the economy and it's going to try and get to grips with it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a this is a measurement that that the government has typically been quite strict on, and they've only really 
made this adjustment in the past for situations like the, the big earthquake that we had a number of years ago, the Asian financial crisis or scenarios like that. So I think them doing this in the midst of what seems like, like a economic recovery, albeit slow, does point to concerns, I think, about future growth. And I think concerns specifically about local governments and their ability to manage their debt load. Um, so I think this was this was done as a way to sort of ensure that coming out of 23 into uh, 2024, that some of the spending programs, the infrastructure programs that are going to place now can continue. I suppose the key, though, is what is it going to spend the money on, isn't it? We, we need to see it go into sort of productive parts of the economy that are going to have a real um, economic impact. Yeah, and, and this is the, the big question. I think that it's been billed as an approach for funding uh, what the government is calling emergency projects, so projects to sort of counterbalance some of the damage done by some of the flooding that we've had in China this year. Um, the reality, though, is I think it goes beyond that and, and that local governments right now really don't have, A, a way to manage the, the debt they currently have on their books, mm. and B, are not really able to generate the kind of tax revenues they've been able to in the past because of the real estate market situation right now. So I think the government is hoping this is going to be enough to sort of kick the can down the road a little bit, but I'm not sure it's enough to really get consumers excited or get them out the door spending, which is really what the economy needs right now. When you go out and about in, in Shanghai, are there any signs that consumers are getting out and about and they are spending and going to restaurants and, and things? Is life back to normal yet? I would say, you know, we're not normal yet, but I, I do think that in the last few weeks, uh, I have seen Shanghai at least trending in the right direction in terms of younger consumers, especially uh, you know, going out to eat, going out to eat at fairly nice restaurants, um, doing more sort of entertainment activities outdoors where there's a spending component involved. Uh, so I think that's a good thing. Um, it means that maybe we're not going to be in some kind of permanent malaise where nothing ever gets better. Uh, but having said that, I, I do think we still have quite a way to go before consumer confidence really does feel normal here. I, su I suppose the problem the Chinese government has got is that we, we've seen all these stimulus measures being announced and now more borrowing, you know, issuing uh, government bonds. The problem, isn't it, is that the deceleration that we're seeing in the in the economy is, is structural. It's, it's not a cyclical deceleration. There are some real issues in the economy that need to be addressed if, if the economy is going to be turned around. Yeah, there's no there's no quick fix here. We have a, a massive demographic problem. We have uh, a challenge in creating enough white-collar jobs to actually fully employ all the young talent that is entering the workforce. Uh, and, and we have, uh, you know, more broadly, uh, China is not as competitive maybe as it's been in the past as an exporter uh, because the, the cost to produce and export from here is is higher than in the past and there's a lot more friction than there has been in the past it, it does have some sectors though doesn't it where it's doing well i'm thinking of electric vehicles for example where it's really sort of dominating the competition around the world albeit because um there's really savage price cuts going on in, in the mainland yeah i mean i think evs are an interesting example because it's a, a sector that, that the government here has earmarked as being kind of a a must-win sector to, to capture future economic gains, and I think they've they've done a good job of putting uh, the domestic EV players sort of in the driver's seat in terms of technology, design, 
manufacturing capacity, supply chain. And, and that does mean we're likely to see some Chinese winners there. The flip side of that, though, is, as you mentioned, there have been really aggressive price cuts. In, in part, that's because the consumer in China is weak. And also, in part, it's because right now there are too many players in the market here. You have a lot of EV producers in China that probably won't exist in five years because they, they can't be competitive as standalone businesses. How, how is it that they're competing so well globally? Because, you know, there are some pretty good EV manufacturers in Europe and the, and the US as well. Um, is, is it because, you know, the Chinese product is uh, much better or is it because of all the support that they're getting from the government? What, what's the re- reason behind it? I think there are a few things. Um, I think one is that the, the vast majority of the supply chain that supports the EV industry is now based out of China. So if you look at sourcing batteries as an example, uh, and so that's a big advantage for local players. Um, I think the other thing is that you know whenever you look at a new technology or a new market, uh, whoever can sort of iterate the fastest tends to do really well. Um, and I think Chinese companies in general now are much better from an innovation standpoint at iterating to see what the market works and and doing so quickly, even if maybe not everything they do is is necessarily the the best thing in the long run. Whereas I think a lot of international automakers are much more staid in their development approach. And so what you're seeing now is the Chinese companies just moving faster. Um, And I think that's been a big advantage for them. They're also willing to uh, accept really low margins to take market share. And I think that's the other key thing. And we're seeing it in other sectors as well, aren't we, where Chinese companies are innovating faster than people thought. I'm thinking, for example, of Huawei uh, with its new smartphone that's got this 5G chip that was manufactured by um, by SMIC um, domestically. Yeah, and that's the that's the big knock on some of the, the U.S. government policy that's been put in place to sort of slow down Chinese industry. This idea that, you know, somehow the U.S. can prevent China from being successful in innovating uh, in semiconductors or microchips or fabrication or things like that. Because all it does is force the government and force these companies to put even more money into R&D because they can't rely on external vendors. Mm -hmm. And I think we're starting to now see that maybe it's not going to be 10 or 20 years before China catches up in those spaces. It might be very, very soon. And what is the um, the financial situation like on the mainland? Because we're seeing all sorts of signs that capital outflows are, are sort of increasing at quite an alarming rate. According to uh, SAFE, China's currency uh, regulator, capital is ex- exiting China at the fastest pace in more than seven years. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation. I mean, I think on the one hand, the the economy here is recovering, and I think it's going to continue to recover. On the other hand, you still have a whole lot of companies and, and wealthy individuals who, who are carrying U.S. dollar-denominated debt uh, that they have to, to cover, and so they might be liquidating assets to take care of that, and that's causing some capital outflow. Um, I think the other thing here is that for a lot of companies and a lot of individuals, looking at what happened during COVID and looking at what has happened as far as economic reform since, uh, they're really looking at risk mitigation. And I think that there is definitely a swath of the population here who worry that the central government has maybe gone too far. They're not so optimistic about the future, not because they don't think the economy is going to go well, but because they think that future policy is not going to be aligned with making their own lives better. And so they're looking at how they get money out of the country. So should we be concerned? Is it at a level where it's, it's getting worrying? Um, I think that the next six months are going to be very telling, uh, looking at what kind of policy directives come down the pipe, looking at what kind of support there is for especially 
entrepreneurs and, and smaller private businesses. And if there are signs that uh, the government is going to be really sort of pro that group, then I, I think you'll see some of that capital outflow slow down and, and we, we might go back to, to see more direct investment coming into the country. But, but right now, I think you have a lot of businesses and individuals sort of just looking for signs. Mm. We had that uh, unusual visit by President Xi to, to go and see the People's Bank of China and the State Administration of Foreign Exchange last week. I think it's the first time he's ever done that um, since he became president. Some analysts are saying this is a sign of you know how important uh, his regarding uh, the, the financial priorities, the economic priorities. Other people are saying, well, it's a sign of you know how serious the, these outflows are. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, it's it's probably a little bit of both. I, my concern in seeing this meeting happen is it's a it's another very strong sort of outward indicator that perhaps the central government is taking even more direct control over financial planning and the economy rather than sort of distributing power more. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that may be a cause for concern for a lot of business owners, uh, investors that are sort of looking at, at the market and looking at what the future looks like. And we've got this new super regulator now, haven't we, that President Xi controls, which oversees now all of these other regulators like the PBOC and SAFE and the CSRC. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you can you can argue that it, it leads to more efficiency and more efficient planning. But I, I just, I think in the discussions that I have with people, the concern I get back is just too much centralization of power, uh, mm. meaning maybe perhaps the wrong decisions might get made at certain times. Mm. I, I also presume that one of the reasons why we're seeing uh, these outflows is because foreigners are selling stocks and bonds in, in, their, in their droves. And this has had a big impact, of course, on the domestic markets. It seems... You know, since the summer, really, um, every rally in the Chinese market and here in Hong Kong has just been met with with waves of selling. There just doesn't seem to be any rally that can find some feet. Are, are you sort of seeing any signs at all of stabilization? I, you know, I think there there is definitely more interest coming back, looking at economic performance in China and saying, well, listen, exposure to China is a really important part of our portfolio. But what I've been seeing happening is that exposure is really taking the form of investors putting money into multinationals that still have exposure here. And and they're being much more coy about investing directly into Chinese securities. And I I think that 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 challenge will probably continue for another another several months. Um, I just think that there's a lot of pushback, certainly in the U.S. and the U.S. government. But then a lot of uh, analysts just having not spent any time here in the last couple of years, they really just don't have a granular feel for what's going on in China right now. Ben, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Ben Cavender, who is Managing Director of the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me there will be Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.